It's just a nightmare on Elm Street. No one's going to listen to this episode anyways. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Watch No Evil. This is Zach. And this is Matt. And this week, we'll be talking about Wes Craven's 1984 classic horror film, A Nightmare on Elm Street, which is the original version of this film, uh, is about a psychotic serial killer who hunts down teenagers in their dreams after he, Freddy Krueger, has been killed by these teenagers' parents. It's the teenage slasher movie, but has a really interesting, like, original concept to Freddy Krueger and, like, the whole idea of your dreams being infiltrated and has a lot to do, in my opinion, with trauma that teenagers go through in regards to their family lives and their pasts and, like, their sexual relationships as well. And their sleeping habits. Teenagers are overworked. Yeah, that's true. It becomes more true every day. To the point of exhaustion. A lot of my students are teenagers, and the whole thing is like, oh, it's getting to college or like get a job or something, and you have to have all these things on your resume to be successful as a young adult. And it's like they're, one, they need more sleep than us adults do. I mean, there's also a lot of religious stuff, right? Which is weird because I think it kind of plays with that, this idea of heaven and hell, but more featured is hell. Because it's kind of like... yeah. I think like Freddy's realm, the boiler room, I think is supposed to represent hell. Then at the very end, I think we get a glimpse of this fake sheen of heavenly atmosphere at the end. Nancy has that last dream right before she gets in the car with her friends. And there's like this glow to everything. And her mom's there and they're all wearing white. And there's like this nice like sunlight, but it's kind of like reflecting off the fog in that Mm -hmm. scene too. But then the car pulls up and it's got Freddy's sweater pattern on on the hood of it. And it's like, you know what's going on. And then Freddy, I think, kills the mom again. So it's like, is this a dream at the end? Has Nancy died the car eats them too i thought it just drove off it locks them in yeah and it eats them is my interpretation of that it's kind of weird i think it's just like freddy's taken all of them is the the implication there i mean it also becomes a philosophical question of these parents have taken a life which is of course a violation of the commandments but it was an act of revenge against a serial child abuser so are they still christian that idea is thrown around a lot too because of uh, especially in the character of tina who is kind of shown to be more religious but then her mom has like this boyfriend who's clearly like staying over and then they are like going to vegas and stuff so it's kind of like what's going on here but then tina's got that crucifix over her bed which she then like kind of grabs and clings to and then just like as a exclamation the word god is thrown around a lot in this movie it's kind of like in your face not necessarily religious in context but you'll just hear teenagers especially like oh god but this one it's like Every time any any of these teenagers being like chased by Freddy, it's God, oh God. And it's like kind of overdone. But also when Tina and Rod are having sex, I think is an interesting point because I'm like, she's kind of taking the Lord's name in vain. Yeah, and it is a morality tale. At the end of the day, this is one of those exact representations of how morality impacts the ideas of a film. And so 
you have Nancy's boyfriend at the very beginning who wants to be with Nancy at the same time that Rod and Tina are together, but they don't get together and he makes the quip about that's what morality gets him. There's this attachment of morality as justification for why someone dies or why it's not that big of a deal. And the same can be true in this one. Like, we see Rod represented as like a bad person. Mm-hmm. Which, is he really that bad of a person? No. no. he's a horny teenager, right? Well, also, like, they, they kind of, like, paint him to be, like, this, the resident deviant, okay? Like, he wears a leather jacket. <laughs> like, what, yeah. what is so deviant about him? There is that, like, scene with Tina where she's at the door and she's like, don't leave me alone with him. I think it's supposed to be sort of comical because obviously she's, yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna go have sex. <laughs> like, it is consent demonstrated which is nice and at the end of it they're talking about how it's like no more fights they're gonna work out their problems as a couple Mm -hmm. like they're not gonna bring up all of these other issues and yet they're still painted as morally bad even Mm -hmm. tina is sort of painted in that light negatively even though it's an it's just a teenager thing yeah it's just like they're just representative counterculture yeah 70s 80s is like totally in film and and media is like painted as the opposite of religion yeah and it's just like why is why do those things have to be mutually exclusive and going back to that idea of morality you know you talked a lot about this movie being sort of rooted in sex and i would agree and one of the hallmarks of that rootedness is the bathtub scene and the the hand comes out of the water and it represents almost this closed offness that nancy is experiencing that she's having which can be a part of sexual repression because of her abuse as a child it also conjures images of like the vagina dentata there is this immediate association because of where it's coming from with sexuality and repression and we see nancy always saying no no, she's not like Tina. She's not like Rod. She's not like any other teenager in the movie. Yeah, and then where does Freddy attack these kids? They're in their beds sleeping mm-hmm. when he attacks them. So it's like or in the okay. bathroom. Yeah. Yes, they have to be asleep during it, which kind of furthers the sexual predatory nature of it, where he's like kind of attacking them while they're they're out. Especially with Tina, like Tina and Rod are in bed together, but then Rod jumps out and you just see Tina rolling around in the sheets with something. And even though Freddy is like kind of invisible because he's not physically there he's it's it's weird it's like almost like they treat it as if he's in a different dimension almost so like you see shots of him and tina like rolling around in the bed and he's attacking her obviously but it's given different context and everything like it could be kind of a yeah because we don't ever see freddy in that in that killing like we see leading up to it but then it switches back to just being from Rod's perspective, mm-hmm. sort of watching this happen and get her getting dragged up the wall. But also like in that dream that where Nancy kind of finally dies, he lures her down into the boiler room. Oh, wait, no, I'm thinking of Nancy's dream where she sees Tina in the body bag. So, yeah, right. Where she falls asleep in class, sees Tina in the body bag, and then he like lures her down into the boiler mm-hmm. room. Because wasn't he the janitor at the school and he kind of like lived in the boiler room, I guess, or just like that was kind of his domain. Okay, is that how he originally killed kids when he was alive? What's weird about like how he reveals himself in the dreams to Nancy and Tina is that one, he cuts himself in front of both of them. But Mm. also we don't see the dreams that 
Rod and Glenn have where Freddy kills them. We just see what happens in the real world. Yeah. I think that also has a lot to do with the sexuality. We can see sort of the lack of like a broad social statement. Also something to talk about the parents in this movie, because not only did the parents kill Freddy Krueger, but they are also riddled with their own problems. So you've got the alcoholics, the ones that are on pills, the ones that aren't around, they're not present, like Tina's mom. Workaholics to the point of neglect. So then it becomes this whole thing where they're just as bad and they are inflicting that pain further onto their children. Because now they're letting Freddy get away with what he wanted to get away with in the first place. Right. By being absent. Now Freddy has come back, not because he's taking revenge, but because he has the opportunity to now. Another part of that that's really interesting is that Glenn's parents, they kind of like try to protect Glenn from Nancy, who appears to have lost her marbles. Glenn's dad is like, I don't want Glenn hanging out with that kid anymore. And he puts the phone just so it's like off the hook so that she can't call anymore but it's almost like they're trying to isolate him and protect him from the dangers of the world but ironically enough that her calling would have saved glenn's life potentially and that's kind of what leads to him you know the whole blood geyser thing which is a great scene which is a a great and horrible scene i i remember seeing that when i was in high school and i was like i will never Mm -hmm. appreciate this movie Well, to me, that blood geyser scene is exactly the same as the blood elevator in The Shining. To be fair, I didn't like the blood elevator when I was in high school either. Yeah, of course. And I think that this movie is one of those ones where each of the kills in it are also so artistically done, or at least representatively done, like nothing feels unnecessary or gratuitous, and there's a relatively low body count in this movie, right? Oh, yeah. Which I think is great, and there is something Freudian a little bit about each of them. For example, Tina's death sort of evokes a rape, unfortunately. Rod's death with the hanging in the jail cell sort of confronts this idea of jail masculinity but it's also freudian because ropes are phallic and then glenn's death is sort of the same he gets he gets sucked into it you mean like it's supposed to be like a vagina right because that's like he wants sex the whole time yeah yeah that is very freudian isn't it it's specifically loss of virginity because well, it's also like plays with the idea of like death being the final release so yeah it, there's all of these underpinnings in sexuality represented through the film via these deaths and so what i like about this movie is that each of them has that very specific meaning and it relates so specifically to the character it's all presupposed it is intervened upon earlier for example when tina and rod are first engaging with each other at the house she says please don't leave me alone with him rod just covers her mouth and like pulls her back and of course they start giggling but like that is Uh, a sign a demonstration and then rod's whole experience with freddy before there is first of all non-penetrative heterosexual in general but also when he's watching and he's talking to nancy all he can say is that there was someone else there so he's constantly comparing himself to the sexual force of other men and living within that and then is dominated and which is why he never gets slashed the slashing is penetrative well and that's the same thing with glenn is he doesn't get slashed he's like gets liquefied (laughs) Yeah, exactly. He gets put into the blender, the bed, the bl- the bed blender, the blender bed where he's blended and then blend. In bed. He's blended and 
So you've got this clear juxtaposition between the men and the women. And then also with the parents, there is no healthy mother father relationships. There are no healthy heterosexual sort of role models in this movie that demonstrate good relationships. You look at movies like the faculty where there are parents, the parents and the faculty have a pretty good relationship with each other. The shitty parenting in this movie and kind of like the childhood trauma that is associated with it is like, are these teenagers kind of turning to their dreams to escape the realities? And then Freddy takes advantage of that fact and that's like how he ends up plotting the revenge in the first place i i do think that that has something to do with it morality is a subject that comes up in you know all of these movies and i think that this i don't think that it's necessarily a morality tale but it does utilize that behavior right it it sort of Mm -hmm. utilizes that pertinent moments it's the introduction of sexual activity in teenagers and it doesn't seem as frivolous as it would in in like friday the 13th or halloween yeah i mean there were a lot of like the subtle cues that we've already talked about but then there are like moments where you know freddie says i'm your boyfriend now nancy and then he says in nancy's last dream i think he says i'm gonna split you in two which is like the double entendre yeah he turns into a cell phone and is tonguing her that loki is like besides the blood geyser i think the thing that scared me the most in that movie because that's one thing i had forgotten about since last time i've seen this (laughs) it's the tongue which actually presents a, a really interesting point so in the original movie Freddy Krueger is never called a child molester. He is called a child murderer. Mm -hmm. It is very clear about defining that role. I think that two things sort of happened. The first is the remake of Freddy Krueger re-solidified his position as child molester by actually showing a lot more of those scenes, of Mm -hmm. course, because we've sort of become more relaxed in the things that we feel comfortable showing on television. Yeah, the preschool thing. But we also are sort of inundated with all of these sexuality things that I think a lot of people just inferred that he was a a child molester in this movie. Yeah, I think it's like kind of the flirty nature of how he stalks the teenagers in the movie Mm -hmm. but also just like yeah like the actions that he takes like with the whole hand between the legs in the bathtub and i don't think anyone was watching this movie be like yeah he just killed kids it's it's like okay also exactly super creepy and makes a lot of sexual comments to these teenagers for it to just be that and honestly it's so funny to watch this movie now and think like this is the least amount of times that he speaks (laughs) <laughs> yeah it, i i like watching it again because i think i'd seen the remake most recently and now like watching yeah. this one again i'm like wow freddie's really not in this that much no it, it is definitely a tale about nancy which is great versus the third movie where freddie is quipping every single line he mm-hmm. says but this one he's very serious yeah, I think after the first one, it's like, I think they more realized Robert England's charisma for good reason. He does a really good job, I think. They also kind of dropped the weird serial killer voice a little bit more. Because yeah. like in, in this one, it's like really like deep and gravelly, like bring one million dollars to the gas station or your daughter will die kind of like a when hostage situation. No, I mean, like, you know, like the hostage oh, calls up with like, like the, the vocoder. certain he <laughs> no. never said these <laughs> Freddie's looking to make some some cash on the side. <laughs> uh, some dream cash? <laughs> yeah, like he needs money. <laughs> but okay, so he's got dream cash, right? So like, does he live in this dream world that's also kind of hell or what? Some other dimension? Like, what is this? And does he, in, in the end, like with Marge, uh, Nancy's mom, 
mm-hmm. and you see her body just kind of like sink into the bed like is she being taken into this dream world like what's what's the theory there yeah that it's a dream world okay and is she being taken into it and that's why we see her in the end not dead or yes so like he just takes these people into this hell that he lives in kind of it's like a hell of his own making right and because remember nancy can pull him out of it as well it is a place Right, that's that's the weird thing because they start blurring the lines a little bit more between the real world and the dream world. Yeah, which I think yeah, I have I have specific thoughts on that. I will let you ask. I think that's like to lead up to the ending so you're not sure at first if that last scene is real or not, but of course it obviously mm-hmm. is is not in the end or it is it's in the dream world. I think it's because it is it is a a continuation of what happens in exhaustion because the idea behind Freddy Krueger is that he's slowly wearing these kids down and we see in later films the purpose of never killing them initially is so that they become so deeply inundated in the dream that even when he starts torturing them physically they won't wake up because their bodies are so exhausted it happens in real life with exhaustion you start to lose track of what is real and what is sort of the mind's hallucination of what is real Mm-hmm. it's like that idea that we start like daydreaming we can start hallucinating things and real life exhaustion blurs those lines too and so i think that that was what they were trying to get at here it seems like a more violent version of a twilight zone episode i don't know if you remember the episode called perchance to dream uh i don't know the episode titles remind me what Okay, so perchance to dream is where there's this man who has a heart condition who believes that if he falls asleep, he's going to die. And so there's this like cat woman who is a carnival worker who is like seducing him onto this roller coaster in an attempt like to scare him to death. And every time he goes to sleep, he sees her and gets closer to the roller coaster. And then he like wakes up out of fear until this point where he's becoming slowly more and more exhausted so that in the final dream he's taken on the ride and dies i think that like playing around with dreams and having a horror villain that can only hunt you in your dreams is pretty genius because it's like what's the one thing you have to do you gotta sleep and you cannot escape it it's not like you can just run away from freddy and be fine and you're at your most vulnerable when you're asleep right exactly i mean like maybe not so much in your dreams but that's something that like they kind of play around with a little bit in this too is lucid dreaming lucid dreaming being like where you know you're in the dream so you have a little bit more control over it Mm -hmm. or i think in the sequels a lot more control over it but that's kind of like what you get in nancy's last dream where she takes freddy out of the dream world and you know it's a lucid dream because there are these voices like interspersed throughout it where it's things that are relevant to the plot of the movie like things that have happened so far tina talking about freddy from like you can tell she's kind of like going through her thoughts about freddy and why this plan will work while she's in the dream so it kind of tells you that she's like a little bit more rooted in reality so it's interesting how they took that route is the original foil to freddy's character is lucid dreaming and having that control and she says you no longer have power in my mind or something like that in the end and that's what kind of like quote unquote Mm -hmm. defeats him he always comes back (laughs) Right. This is such a unique 
idea for a film, especially in 1984. It was sort of revolutionary for what it gave, and I think that it still impacts people today. The idea that dreams are something that we can never escape, it's it's powerful. And it's not only the dreams that are so iconic about it. Freddy Krueger is interesting because he, he is that, but he's iconic because of the, the outfit, and he's like so charismatic and flirty and... It's got the claws. And I actually saw, you know what Dr. Ruth is, right? Yeah. Yeah, so back when Dr. Ruth was on like the 80s and early 90s, I think she has like a more recent show too that she's on right now. She's the she's like the sex health doctor, right? Yeah, originally the show was like intended for teenagers to be more open about talking about sex. And it's kind of like a no judgment zone for teenagers to learn more about it and be a little healthier about it. It's kind of like a talk show. And she had... Wes Craven and Clive Barker on an episode and she like interviewed them or on that uh, Wes Craven said that he gave Freddy the, the gloves because what's our most primal fear as humans, you know, of these these predatory animals that have claws. And that's kind of like what Freddy is. He's a, he's a predator. I found that really, really interesting that that's why he came up with such an iconic weapon that Freddy only uses half the time to kill. <laughs> yeah, it's so much better than knife I thought you were going to say more. (laughs) No, it's just better than just arbitrary knife. (laughs) Well, yeah, it's like, okay, so like Michael Myers has the knife and, you know, it's like, it's more than just a blade. The chef's knife as the means by which he kills his victims is supposed to be representative of like the home and like domestic turbulence. Which is like also a theme in here. It's been played out, you know, it's it's so it's not imaginative. And it fits with, like, the whole claw thing fits with the imaginative nature of this and the dreamlike nature of this movie. When people think horror movies, at least, like, one of the first three, the layman thinks of is Nightmare on Elm Street and about Freddy Krueger. And, like, he's just so iconic. So going back to the dream thing. Okay, so there's, like, the opening where you kind of get the TV within the TV screen of Freddy making the claws, which is really neat And since we were talking about the claws. But also, after that, it's... Tina in that first dream and she's got like the nightgown on it's like pretty obvious that she's dreaming because of that there's also a sheep in the dream with her it's like she's counting sheep you know it's like really obvious to begin with and like we talked about it becomes the the lines become blurred more and more throughout although I think it was a little bit too obvious in the very beginning I have a really good story about the the first time that I tried to watch Nightmare on Elm Street and so the first time that I actually saw this movie from start to finish, was in college. Did you know that? I did not know that. I started watching it when I was 10 years old. Oh, you get scared. So my cousin Alex, who is a a year older than I am, came over. We used to hang out all the time. So he came over for a sleepover and we were like, let's watch a scary movie. At that point, scary movies didn't bother me. So we decided on watching Nightmare on Elm Street. So we went down to the basement of my house, which is not a creepy place, but we started watching the movie. And the second that Tina's body dropped from the ceiling and hit the bed, my power went out. Oh no. (laughs) And my parents have talked about just hearing me and my cousin screaming in the basement (laughs) because it was so perfectly timed. That's really good. Oh, I hope your dad was like watching from the other room or something, or you guys like had the volume up and he like cut the power right when that happened. Oh, oh that would be funny, <laughs> but it wasn't that. We didn't have power for the rest of the the day after that. Oh, uh, like, you couldn't that, finish the that, movie. 
we didn't finish the movie, but also I would have, if told, believed that it was Freddy Krueger that turned off our power. It was like a storm. <laughs> yeah. Right? It was like a storm that knocked out our power. But it was truly the most terrifying thing I've ever experienced regarding horror movies and not personal life experience. Wow. I can't believe I haven't heard this story before. It kept me from watching Nightmare on Elm Street for a long time. I saw the new Nightmare on Elm Street movies, the remake in high school when it first came out, but I didn't see the original until college. Yeah. I assume you saw Freddy and Jason then before the original. I did. I did see uh, Freddy and J- Freddy versus Jason. I saw Freddy versus Jason. Fun story. When I was 12 at a babysitter's house. Um, you're like, I know this guy. <laughs> he scares me. Yeah. I was just like, we just, let's just watch this movie. And yeah, that was a really, really fun one too. Cause I was just like, this movie slaps. This is great. And that was actually why I wanted to go back initially and start rewatching the movies. But I just could never bring myself to watch the first one again. And actually, I remember after watching Freddy vs. Jason, I remember watching Freddy 3 because uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, the Dream Warriors is hilariously stupid. It's all of the kids in the mental asylum that are having the dreams. And they go into the dreams and they and they get superpowers. My favorite line from the Dream Warriors 3, they, they're getting their powers. The kid in the wheelchair becomes a, a wizard. Okay. All right. Yeah. And then one of them gets super strength and all of these things. Like, they get representations of the self. Yeah. But the punk girl doesn't get powers. She gets a mohawk. And what is she supposed to do with that? Oh my god, it's so funny because the camera lights on her and she goes, I am both strong, clicks open two switchblades, and beautiful. (laughs) Oh my god. I I don't know if it was supposed to be like a feminine empowerment thing, but I was just like, this dude became a wizard and (laughs) you got a mohawk. (laughs) There are switchblades in real life. (laughs) Switchblades are not a superpower. (laughs) I mean, it's clear in this movie, too. Like, Freddy has, like, some kind of control over the dreams, right? Like, he, he can yeah. stretch his arms out, and he's got... Where he cuts his fingers off, but then, like, the next scene, he's got the fingers back. So, like, he's got yeah. control over it, and I think he has control over, like, where the dream is. Because, like, it's there's this weird kind of relationship with time and space in the dreams. Where it's, like, yeah. where she, it, like, leaves her house, goes through this door that's, like, in her front yard. And then suddenly mm-hmm. she's, like, at the the jail where yeah God is. right and she can watch yeah and it's like he's leading her there that's one of the cool things that they do explore in the later ones is the bounds of the dream world that they're in because it becomes a plot point that characters are able to escape freddy by breaking through walls into other locations like there is across the movie this like broad development in ability and like the lucid dreaming aspect to like reassert control Mm -hmm. and they have to sort of do it when they're at their strongest and healthiest because that's what allows them to achieve that change yeah makes sense the series as a whole develops really nicely what doesn't develop nicely is the budget I feel like in the horror genre, as a franchise, if you don't absolutely nail your first sequel, your budget's going to be going downhill. Freddy versus Jason. The way that, that Freddy starts to reassert his control over Ohio kids is by having Jason kill them and then right. tiptoe through the tulips out of there so that Freddy can get all the recognition. Yeah, and the, the soul points or whatever it is that 
serial killer horror villains want yeah they want the points gotta rack up that many souls <laughs> it's like an mlm of hell like you've got to recruit a certain number of soul uh collectors yeah. underneath you in order to become the soul queen mm-hmm. you get like a 10 percent stake and a 10 percent discount what is the personal commission on each soul <laughs> um i mean they let you keep like 40 that seems fair they let you keep one aspect, like kill one person. It's like, oh, I get the humility. And in this one, <laughs> this one, I get the arrogance. Like, you know. You get the most dominant trait. You want to, like, motivate your work. Mm-hmm. Why are we gone this far? Tip your serial killers, folks. <laughs> if they have the decency to, like, be creative about how they kill you and collect your soul. In this movie, like, with the sleep study thing and Nancy, and they're like, is Nancy going crazy, or does she actually have something going on with her dreams? And this Mm -hmm. Freddy Krueger guy. They do, like, the sleep study, and the researcher guy is like, we don't know what dreams even are or where they come from. And I'm like, well, those are both lies. And it's like, yeah, there is this mysterious, like, scientific nature around dreams, but, like, if you just think about it as thoughts while you're sleeping, it Mm -hmm. makes sense. And it's just... You don't even have to do like a study to do that. So I was thinking about that and just looking some stuff up. I have this dream trivia game that I'm going to call the Elm Street of Broken Dreams. So this first one, I'm not even going to ask you because it's way too easy, but. No, ask me. Okay. Which is a more restful state of sleep, Matt? REM or NREM? Didn't REM do end of the world as we know it? Yeah. I'm going to say REM is the most restful state of yes, sleep. Yes, and REM, it's non-rapid eye movement yeah. phase. <laughs> but coincidentally, the body's vital functions are more similar to wakefulness during the REM phase. Like your heart rate's higher, your breathing is faster. It's almost like you're awake rather than REM. It's like that's where your breathing slows down. It's like where you're falling asleep and your heart your heart rate goes down. I guess I never can cons- I don't. I don't breathe when I sleep, you know? So it's, oh, it's, I see. It, when I go to sleep, it's like you, you've caught a honeybee and you put it in the fridge for later. <laughs> so you're like cryogenically preserved. <laughs> right. Which is not a known cause of nightmares? A, trauma. B, stress. C, the spirit of a child murderer attempting to hunt you down and kill you. Or D, the use of medication. E, cheese. You're right. You got it. It was E. No, cheese. It, it is. It is. Well, no, cheese is a cause of is a cause of nightmares. I don't know if you knew. What this. kind of cheese though? All so cheese? the child killer, the one is that you said that you had. Wait, what were yeah, the questions? Yeah. You're, you're you're right. That one is a joke. What's the cheese thing? Explain that to me. Uh, cheese makes you dream. Does it make you have nightmares though? Yeah. Oh. I did not because know when you dream, is this leading to something? Cheese, it like it's che- because it's so difficult to digest. Um, the <laughs> body basically is trying to digest it while you sleep, so you stay in the REM cycle longer, oh. which is where you have like the the more vivid dreams. So cheese gives you nightmares. This is a real thing. I can't tell if you're fucking with me or if this is real. <laughs> I need you after this episode to go to Google and type in cheese make you dream. Cheese nightmare. <laughs> I'm just going to ask the third question now. Why do dreams exist and where do they come from, Matt? It is your brain trying to process information that you experienced during your, your waking life. Yeah, that and or... The result of normal brain activity, a.k.a. thought. <laughs> it's yeah. just, that's the thing that pisses me off about this movie the most. Uh, last question. What's the record for time spent awake? 
Uh, a hundred and twenty-eight hours, and then the guy uh, chewed off his arm. That's it's the movie. A hundred and twenty-eight hours. <laughs> Maybe he was awake for that long. I don't know. I would say that it the longest time that someone has spent awake, which was me. I think that I did it, which was <laughs> let's let's shoot high, three weeks. Three. You've never stayed awake. Yeah, I didn't say I was going to tell you the truth. Yeah, it's not that long. It's eleven days. Actually, the movie had it right. 11 days or 264 hours in 1964, Randy Gardner stayed awake for a science fair experiment project. Uh, I don't know if that's necessarily, I don't know, true. Like he could have just mm-hmm. made that up, but that's kind of like what's thought to be the longest. It's not really that heavily documented, but more documented studies have been completed where people have had to stay awake for 10 days. So did he live? Yeah. And it's interesting that you bring that up because it was like the next thing on Google was like, can staying up too long kill you? And it's like, well, we don't know. No one's actually died from sleep deprivation that we know of. But a study was conducted at the University of Chicago that suggests that humans could eventually die from sleep deprivation. Uh, they tested on rats and they kept the rats awake for 32 days. Well, they kept some of the rats awake for 32 days because some of them died before that. And by 32 days, they were all dead. So it just makes sense because, like, if you don't give your body rest, your bodily functions will that. start shutting down. That they killed yeah. rats for this? Yeah. yeah. But I don't like that. That's yeah. got to be. That's got to be. This was I wouldn't like say in the 80s. Because PETA would not do shit. They'd take the rats and then kill them themselves. But yeah. like, that's sad. It's Because they're just like, well, this lipstick just... is is vegan and it's just like well shouldn't all lipstick be vegan <laughs> and meanwhile there's like people keeping rats awake for 32 days yeah. and, just waiting and, for and them like to die. you think about like cosmetics being tested on animals and i was just like why are you putting lipstick on pigs like what is the <laughs> and then it's just like oh it's to see if the if the chemicals are like an irritant to the skin like i well, got it now like you know it's also to make them look pretty Lipstick on a Pig is also a country album. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this week's episode of Watch No Evil. This is Matt. And this is Zach. Sweet dreams.